The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white-hot fires of the 90s comic book boom, now ready to re-examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to episode 85 of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. The podcast where we re-examine the 90s comic book boom through the pages of Wizard Magazine. Wondering if dressing up as Galactus at the Wizard offices was considered formal attire, I'm Adam. And here to tell you that I like my lanterns green and my hulks mean... I'm Michael. Oh, yes. And this is a big one, geeks. We finally arrived to a major milestone in Wizard Magazine history and Wizard's podcast history. Okay, so issue 85 opens with an ad for the infamous Wizard-branded Visa credit card. Did they really have a Visa credit card? They really did it, man. (laughs) And so here's the thing. So Polly bagged in with the issue was an actual application so you could sign up for your Wizard credit card. Credit card, and you would get an exclusive Witchblade versus the Darkness half comic. And I think it was just one they were already doing, but it was an exclusive cover. And then also there was a, an enrollment in a Wizards Reward Points program. So I got to ask you up top, Michael, have you ever signed up for a branded credit card to get certain perks? I almost signed up for a New York Jets credit card at one point. A few years ago, before we had kids, we were going to buy season tickets to the Jets. And I was going to get the credit card because we would have gotten discount on the season tickets. And then I bailed out. it. I mean, we have like Macy's credit cards and Best Buy credit cards. But like that was the only one that I really was like, oh, I want a Jets credit card. I, you know, I think at one point. DC Comics had a credit card too. I was considering it. Like it was when they first launched like digital comics and stuff like that. And I was like, oh, you get some free digital content. And I and I sort of bailed on that one, but I was almost all in on the Jets one. So many times you almost pulled the trigger. I will say the only time <laughs> I did it was there was a KISS branded credit card in the mid-2000s that they offered. And as far as I know, I wasn't aware of any major perks, and I never even used it. I just wanted the card that had the KISS band members on it, and I had it in my wallet until it expired, and then I never renewed it. You know, I was just like, but I've got a, I still have it to this day. It's a collectible, you know? I'm sure you do. It's funny you mentioned the kiss thing, because the first thing you see when you open up this issue is this giant ticker across the top that says free kiss stickers right off the top. And I'm like, that's why he's been so pumped about this issue. Oh, very exciting. Yeah, there's Psycho Circus stickers. And actually, one of our listeners, friend of the show, uh, Chris Bailey, who's been on, he sent me some stuff a while back and he included, like, he just happened to have an extra sheet of the Kiss stickers in there. So I've got plenty now. I'm very happy about that. But here's the other thing, Michael. When I sent uh, Wizard Editor Brian Cunningham a scan of this issue, he shared a bunch of behind-the-scenes stories because it just stirred up a bunch of things for him. And I'm going to be like kind of sprinkling them in throughout the episode. But the first story he shared was, quote, the Wizard Visa card was roundly mocked in editorial as super cheesy. (laughs) Really? Like by the the staffers or by like, no kidding? 
So the staff were not on board with this. This is a Garib Sheamus 100%. But that's the thing. It may have been scoffed at in the office, but it was actually headline news in the business world. Because in my research, Michael, I found a report about this event. I don't know. They thought it was a big deal. It was actually published October 31st. Yes, Halloween 1998, when I was at a KISS concert at Dodger Stadium that night. It's all coming together, Michael. But Wow. uh, The universe is really folding in on each other. It's like... (laughs) But this was from Chief Marketer Magazine, and the title was Wizard Charges into Affinity instead of Infinity. This is what they say. I think Affinity was like a creditor of some sort. I think so, yes. Somebody that tied in here that says the Affinity credit card is to Wizard Entertainment, but the utility belt is to Batman. The Congress New York-based publisher of magazines for fans of comics, toys, and other collectibles added the first Wizard-branded Visa card to its arsenal of marketing weapons last month. While not as dramatic as a battering, the card makes perfect sense, pairing quick, easy spending with passionate consumer interest. (laughs) So, president and publisher Garib Sheamus says the move is aimed at building the brand, as well as tapping into customers' desire for comics, toys, trading cards, and other collectibles. Interested in keeping costs to a minimum, the promotional materials reached 1.5 million Wizard customers and prospects during August and September without a lick of additional postage. This is like his genius move they're so proud of. Request forms were polybagged with the company's three magazines, Wizard, Toy Fair, and Inquest, reaching a total circulation of 450,000 per month. So that just tells you where Wizard was at in 98, right? Wow. But not only that, forms were also slipped into 25,000 to 50,000 fulfillment packages each month and bound into 500,000 AnotherUniverse.com catalogs in August. AnotherUniverse.com, which is licensed to sell certain Wizard products, such as limited edition action figures, access to part of its database in exchange for the right to insert forms into the catalog. So they did a little trade there. Now here's what Garib says, quote, we do whatever we can not to pay postage to get to our customers because (laughs) no, we can get them in other ways. It's kind of ominous. We can get them in other ways. (laughs) Because the core consumer is young, mostly male average age 22 with household income of $44,600. That's very specific. Wizard has been, quote, working with credit card issuer MBNA to offer low credit lines and credit card approval, especially to those who might be first-time credit card holders. <laughs> so it's it sounds like, like when I was a freshman in college, they always had like a, you know, Citibank or whatever was there. And they're like, ooh, sign up for this credit card. And it was like, it started at like $150, you know, credit line. And then over time it would grow. But the interest rate was like 22 and a half percent or something. Oh, absurd. We got to get these stupid kids. <laughs> yes. It's free money. You didn't know this. So they go in and explain, you know, about the exclusive comic, about the rewards program and all of that. But then the final quote from Garib is, quote, we're fueling customers' passion even more now because they feel like every time they make a purchase, they're working towards getting the collectibles. So there you go. I mean, there's like, we we know who you are and we're going to get you. Um, so these were NFTs before there was NFTs. <laughs> But let me ask you, Michael, if you think about 1998, let's say you see this issue of Wizard, you are about to be a college kid. You're not yet. You're still in high school like me. But what would you have bought if you somehow qualified for this card in 98? What would have been your first like comic related purchase or otherwise, do you think? Oh, that's tough. Um, I probably would have bought action figures of some sort, like the Nightfall line of uh, 
Batman figures. You know how they had all those cool commercials, but the cool silvery Batmobile and that kind of thing. I wanted that so badly and I never got it. I probably would have put that credit card and bought that Batmobile or something stupid. This just found all the legends of the Dark Knight. Yes. Okay. That's exactly. I was actually looking at the uh, the catalog here because the issue also comes packed with another universe catalog. Of course, they're so in sync right now. And there's a ton of Wizard exclusives. So they have a whole page that's uh, Wizard half issues, but they're signed. And so oh. we actually have some of these uh, in the archives here. But there's also a ton of signed action figures. So they're exclusives that they put together for Toy Fair. Then they would have a creator who worked on that character sign it. But there's like Firestar. There's the Kitty Pride, which we have. There's, you know, multiple man, there's She-Hulk, which we have, all that kind of stuff. So it's just kind of neat to see those. So I, I probably would have just wanted to, going back in time now, I would have stocked up on all the wizard collectibles I could. <laughs> That's cool. You know what else I probably would have used it on? Remember when Columbia House was a thing and you'd like, you know, get 10 CDs for a dollar or something like that. And then you could build every month for like absurd amounts i probably would have done it like that like order a bunch of cds of something oh uh, yeah that, that's totally i mean that's like in high school you're like yeah music is everything this is it speaking of 98 did you ever own Janko jeans oh man i did not this is a thing i don't know if it was more east coast or what i had never heard of it but they've started advertising in the comic books of 1998 that i've been reading and obviously this issue comes packed with a Janko jeans flame head yeah. <laughs> like a little comic book but did you so wear them i owned like a pair but it wasn't like super super baggy but here's the funny thing in 2023 janko jeans are back oh and some of my students have been asking me like hey do you have any of your janko jeans or like stussy t-shirts and like adidas sambas they're like I just bought a pair of Janko jeans for $400 on eBay. $400! So the vintage clothing of our youth, they now want. Yes! I was like, it's so bizarre. The question I have is, were these the raver pants that were like super wide? Like, yes, with, it, the, with the really long pockets and they had yeah. like embroidery on the back and stuff like that. Yeah. They yes, were I'm, sure the, I'm sure the raver kids at my school, when everybody seemed to transition from goth to raver all yes. at once, like at the end of the 90s, I think they must have been wearing those. I just never looked at the label. So <laughs> <laughs> that's great, though. All right. Well, Michael, if you did find those, you know, in the basement somewhere. You had your Jinko jeans. You'd have to ship it on out to them. They'd get it in the mail. They'd be so excited. They'd tell the world. But, you know, Wizard was getting plenty of mail, too, at this time. So let's open up Willie Lumpkin's mailbag. The king of the transitions, folks. He is the king. Steve Dukovsky of Riverdale, New York, which actually is a real place, Riverdale. That's what I was going to say, Archie? He lives in New York? It's a real place, yeah. Inquires about a cameo he noticed. Dear Mr. McLaughlin, I was watching Superman Adventures cartoon with my brother this afternoon when something caught our eyes. At the funeral scene at the end of the Apocalypse Now episode, my bro thought he saw a long-haired goateed man then i spotted an elderly bearded white-haired man could this be alex ross and norman ross the painter of kingdom come and his dad 
the basis for Norman McKay, which is yeah, which is the guy that's like was wrong with the with the Spectre, yep, respectively. If so, it really turns the tables as Alex is always slipping something shifty into his work. Interesting, right? So what I love about that is that immediately this afternoon, so he wrote the letter right after he saw it and said it, you know, dropped it's, it in the mailbox. It's fresh in his mind, baby. Fresh in his mind. It's an AOL thing. I bet you he did it through like their oh, yeah. AOL email or chat or something that. Consider those tables turn. Ross and Ross do appear, and it's largely just through blind luck. The funeral of Dan Turpin, Metropolis cop whose visual appearance in the cartoon is based on legendary comic creator Jack Kirby. Producers Paul Dini and Bruce Timm slipped a bunch of cameo appearances into the funeral, including the Rosses, Warner Brothers staffers, and even a bunch of Kirby created characters, including Marvel characters, such as the Fantastic Four, Nick Fury, and Black Panther. The only problem? When the episode was shipped overseas to be animated, many of those specific background characters were replaced with general background shots. The scene was reshot, and most of planned cameos remained obscured. By sheer luck, or maybe divine intervention, since Norman Ross is a Protestant minister, the Kingdom Come pair earned the clearest, most open shot. Interesting. Yeah, is that, that's just a funny behind the scenes. Like if you're on, you know, Max now watching the Superman Adventures cartoon and then you get to that episode, you're like, whoa, there was supposed to be a whole bunch more, you know, cameos <laughs> that you can't see. <laughs> yeah. And I wonder how they would have like, you know, got through with like having Fantastic Four and, and those characters in there. Like it had to have been real, like hard to see, like way in the back kind of thing. Yeah, or, or they would have just been in plain clothes, but you could yeah. basically tell it was them. Yeah. So anyway, I just thought it, again, like this is the era where DVDs are just coming around, but you're not getting like a full commentary with behind yeah. the scenes explanations. So who knows if when they finally did that for that series, if that was even mentioned. So here in Wizard and exclusive. <laughs> but uh speaking of movies and entertainment and comedy this one is kind of weird okay it is from a uh i'm gonna call him a kid james marston no not that one uh from the internet makes it clear to me at least that he's young illiterate or both so here a movie illiterate i'll say he's from the internet guys (laughs) he's lawnmower man So here's what it says. Dear Wizard, in Uncanny X-Men number 129, Dazzler refers to the Hellfire Club's armored attack squad as, quote, refugees from Starship Troopers. Did the concept for the Starship Troopers movie come from this, or is it just coincidence that this became the title for the movie? If you can answer this, thanks. And then Jim McLaughlin says, oh, I can answer this. Starship Troopers originated as a book. By noted science fiction author Robert A. Heinlein, published way back in 1959, a book, for those of you unfamiliar with the concept, is, according to the old Webster's Unabridged Dictionary, any number of written or printed sheets bound together. Dazzler, being a well-read heroine, is probably familiar with many of these strange and wondrous volumes, and thus was able to make this reference. Were she here right now, old Daz would probably inform you that many movies actually start out as these books, and that books are our friends you should read one today you're welcome (laughs) wow that is one of those passive aggressive responses i've ever seen oh he will take as many opportunities as he can to take him down a notch those geeks out there reading wizard magazine that's funny all right well michael i'm sure that that kid that was big news for him (laughs) but i think we have some big news this issue oh we're gonna keep those transitions rolling one last time (laughs) 
Our top story in Wizard News this issue is Emerald City reports that the sale success of the recent appearances of the time-displaced Silver Age Hal Jordan in a modern DC universe in the Emerald Knight story arc is leading readers to believe that a second Green Lantern title will be added to appease fans of the hero. Apparently, sales shot up 75% when Green Lantern 100 hit the stands causing the issue to sell out and a second printing to be published. Despite this sales boost, the editorial staff is sticking to their guns that Kyle Rayner is the only Green Lantern. And he is for a while until basically, you know, Green Lantern Rebirth, which is at least another five or six years down the line. I mean, and you got to think, like, I know that was their plan all along, but it just feels like the more the Heat group comes after them, the more they're like, hey, look, here's a little Hal for you. Take it back. No, here's, here's, here's a taste. Here's a taste. But I mean, what's weird is, though, in the Justice League show, Jon Stewart is there. You know, Guy Gardner pops up here and there. So, like, there are other Green Lanterns that pop up in other, you know, pop culture at this time, too. But you know. yeah, and honestly, like this day and age still, I feel like it is Jon Stewart is the definitive Green Lantern for most people of pop culture. That's who they yeah. think. of. Oh, totally. Like, I mean, listen, I love Hal Jordan. You know, I love Kyle Rayner. I love Guy Gardner, especially for his wit. But like when I think of like Green Lantern, the hero, I think of Jon Stewart, especially from that animated series, because he just, you know, it's one of those. There's a line even when they do that crossover with the future Justice League. Is, you know, he has this line where like, what do you do when you have the weight of the world in your shoulders? You plant your feet. And like that stuck to me as a kid to this day. Like just wow. Like that's something a hero would say, you know, I digress anyway. Back to the news at hand. DC Executive Director Mike Carlin describes Hal Jordan as a fairly blank slate as a character and that his run was a lackluster series for a while. Carlin elaborates, the bottom line is, if we brought Hal back, we'd please people for a month or two, and then we might fall right back into the same area that we were in before. As creators of stories, we have to reserve the right to tell an unhappy ending. Hal Jordan has an unhappy ending. It doesn't diminish his his contributions. It's just the ending. We've been talking about the topic for months, but in the long run, what do you think of the legacy of Hal Jordan up to this point prior to Rebirth and all that kind of stuff? I mean, that's the thing. I, I feel like if you were a fan, you know, from like the previous, you know, 30 years, then you were just like, well, he is Green Lantern. Like, you can't think of it any other way. You're like, it was always Hal Jordan. Like, even Alan Scott hadn't really, I mean, they had like the Earth 2 stuff and they had, yeah. you know, they would look back at Justice Society revivals every once in a while, but it was always Hal Jordan. He was just, you know, the Silver Age were the definitive heroes. But at the same time, I don't know how many people could point to a story that wasn't, you know, the Green Arrow, Green Lantern where he really mattered, where he was relevant, where he was speaking on topics all the time. It was like, he was very important at that moment. And then as soon as that ended, you know, that collaboration, then he's just kind of like, uh, he still exists. Remember when he did all this great stuff? You know, he was socially aware. Now he's just yeah. in space. That was like, what they, what they call that? Hard traveling heroes. Well, that was what it was yeah. called. Something, something like that. Yeah. And that was a really great run. And then again, you know, he pops up, you know, when the death of Superman happens and the rebirth and stuff like that. And then in the whole parallax thing. But truthfully, to me, prior to rebirth, 
I can't point to any other things that I could think of where like he was significant. He wasn't significant in, in Crisis and Infinite Earths at all. And in any of those other arcs, like even Kingdom Come, even though he's like an older, I think maybe that even may have been Alan Scott, I think. I think maybe it was. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you know, he's not even in it. And, you know, when it comes to Alan Scott, I think of him as more of an Earth based Green Lantern because his powers come from essentially the Earth. Yeah. I don't know. Like to me, you know, as we just said, you know, John Stewart was our like animated series one. And then this whole run with Kyle Rayner was kind of like of this era. And that's what I could think of when I think of Green Lantern at this time. Yeah. Like um, even I always just go back. I mean, he was parallax when I was reading comics. He yeah. Didn't he wasn't this. I mean, people talked about his legacy as a hero, but even like now, like, you know, everybody looks back and says, OK, yeah, the rebirth of Jeff Johns and everybody was like excited he was back. But then since then, is he? relevant anymore everybody's so, just kind of said that was good he's back thank you but yeah i would say even now you know i mean the whole jeff johns run was huge and fantastic and made yeah. him great again and then between the new 52 and the redux or whatever you know, the dawn of the dc he's kind of gone nowhere he was really interesting in dc versus vampires because he could become the vampire of that which is kind of cool but like They've tried to focus on other Green Lanterns a lot. You know, you have, you know, the Jessica Cruises and stuff like that that have become more prevalent in, in pop culture right now. And he just, you know, kind of took a back seat again. He's just sort of there. Well, let's see what the fans at the time thought here. So Wizard wanted to know how the fans felt about po the possibility of Kyle and Hal coexisting in the DC universe and ran three surveys to gauge their interest, asking, would you buy two current continuity Green Lantern titles? 57% said yes, 41% said no, and 2% said maybe. The next question they asked is, would you support a second Green Lantern title if it was a Legends of Hal Jordan theme and not a current continuity? 62% said yes. 37% said no, and 1% said maybe. And then the last uh, question they asked is, if you could only buy one Green Lantern title, would you buy a Hal Jordan book or a Kyle Rayner book? 59% said Kyle, 41% said Hal. Wow. So, I mean, it's interesting. Like, okay, if they both existed, yeah, we, we'd probably buy them. If there was like, you know, and looking back at Hal's adventures we didn't know about, okay, we'd buy it. But then it's like, when it comes down to it, it's like, no, Kyle's the guy. We like yeah. Kyle. You know, it's, it, Hal is not bad. We just like Kyle. <laughs> yeah. Let him have his time. Yeah. Yeah. All right. But sticking with the green theme here, Burn Hulk to have TV influences reports that following Joe Casey's short run on The Incredible Hulk, following the departure of Peter David, Joe John Byrne and Ron Garney will be taking the book in a new direction and streamlining the title to simply Hulk. Says Bird of the storytelling style, quote, We're leading toward a direction, oddly enough, that feels like the Bill Bixby television series. We're looking to do smaller human interest stories that have the Hulk dropping in on different people with different problems each issue. Always looking to rile up previously lauded writers on characters whose books he takes over. Bird says of Betty Ross's apparent death at the end of his run, quote, I guess Peter David said he thinks she's permanently dead, but I think I could revive her in two panels. <laughs> John Byrne, he's burning everybody, burning every bridge at this time. He was calling out 
Kurt Busiek saying your Spider-Man story has never happened from Untold Tales of Spider-Man. He just wanted to do it. But I got to ask you, Michael, do you prefer the idea of a Hulk book having a consistent like supporting cast of like government types pursuing him and he gets to have his friends and all that? Or do you like the idea of kind of the self-contained on the road stories, Hulk on the run? I, I kind of feel like we've seen the trope of the government types pursuing him for so long that I'm like, I'm over it. I'd rather him do that sort of, you know, Bill Bixby's man with no country, just sort of going around helping people here and there and maybe causing them havoc at the same time. Like, we've seen this same age-old story. It's just enough already. No one cares that he's uh, the government's after him. He could go anywhere. He could destroy anything. Like, I'm over it. I, when I dip into Peter David here and there, and I'll just, like, you know, look up an issue, grab an issue or whatever, It's I just get bored because I'm just like, 75% of the issue is government, political, whatever yeah. is going on, what we're doing to planning to catch the Hulk or whatever, or the Hulk is now intelligent and he's part of our team. Like, none of that interests me. So yeah, I, yeah, I think man. this is the right way to go. I will say I did read the first three issues of this Hulk series just because I had never, I didn't know about this shakeup mm-hmm. here. And it's interesting because yeah, it's the Hulk in a small town and he destroys the small town. And then there's a small town sheriff that he ends up living with because he's just coming into town as a worker to try to make his way. And But the thing that Byrne does is the first three issues, he tells the same story just from different perspectives. Oh. I would have been furious as a reader at the time. I'm like, you're telling the same story again. You're telling the same story again, like because it's not that interesting. And then there's like a twist at, at the third issue. You're like, oh, okay, so he wasn't out of control. Somebody was controlling him, and da da da, which is also a little bit lame. It, it was a very bold decision by Bird, but I just felt like I think you got to keep him moving the first three issues before you pull a stunt like that. You know, it's like show us that he's going to be on the road. Don't keep him in one place and just keep it going over and over again you know what would be funny though with like this kind of story the bruce banner side of it where like he's almost like macgyver going places and sort of like inventing things out of nothing to like save this town and then when his inventions don't necessarily take off the hulk steps in and just starts wiping out whatever band of hoodlums are <laughs> causing trouble in the well, town. okay it's yeah, interesting you say that so we're we're going to get to this in just a little bit but there is an interview with joe casey in this issue because he was writing the hulk mm-hmm. and he says here Bruce Banner should be able to think his way out of just about any situation, and the Hulk is always the last resort, the final, the most extreme way to deal with a mess. So yeah, you man. and Joe Casey, you're in sync right there. Same I'm, idea. I'm right there. Look at that. <laughs> you know, 25 years later, I could be writing these stories. Uh, but speaking of a different Joe, Joe Kelly, what was he going to be up to in October 1998? Oh, boy. So Deadpool month in October. I feel like every month is Deadpool month. Um <laughs> Reports that Marvel is going all out in celebrating the popularity of the Merc with a Mouth by not only releasing a double-sized issue, but also an encyclopedia Deadpool... Deadpoolica, like Encyclopedia Britannica. Encyclopedia Deadpoolica. Deadpoolica. Oh, man. Doesn't quite roll off the tongue. Yeah, we had had an Encyclopedia Britannica. I think I opened one issue of it or one volume of it once. My parents (laughs) spent God knows. We don't need a computer. We'll get these encyclopedias instead. We'll use them. Okay, great. Deadpool team up starring Deadpool, Whittle Wade, Baby's First Deadpool book, and even... A Randy Bowen Deadpool bust 
statue. See, I was never into the bust. I like the full figure. I don't have any bust statues. I feel like it's just like a cop out. If oh. you ask me, I don't. I don't like the busts. It's just it's like this big. But all right, fine, whatever. A bust sculpt, sure. Plus, Wizard will be releasing an exclusive zero issue, which will be packed in with Wizard eighty seven. Who knew that twenty five years later we would be all anticipating a third Deadpool movie? Now, are you excited about this new film? I. I'm pretty pumped personally. I just don't know what to expect. Like, here's the thing. I didn't see either of the other two movies in theater. What? I, I, I did not go. I, I, Deadpool's not my guy. And so I, I rented him and I'm like, I mean, Deadpool 1 was really good. Deadpool 2 was very fun. And so I'm just like, I can't imagine how zany this next one's going to be because they're teasing all the multiverse stuff. And like, that's, that's what I think is going to be pretty hilarious. So I may go to the theaters for this one. Finally. I love Ryan Reynolds. Like, I think he's phenomenal. And I went to see the movie more for him than for Deadpool and fortunately went in loving it on top of that which is which is the best part and based on what they're what they're saying like this thing is going to have everything there's going to be just cameos galore and the fact that it's the only marvel movie coming out in 2024 now they pushed it back to slate they have to make it epic because there'll be such a long span of time between that and the next movie they need to have it knock it out of the park yeah well it's gonna be really interesting just to see what the marvel mcu sway they have now because before it was fox right and now disney yeah. and marvel are involved so what more can they add it's gonna and, be and they're letting it be r which is amazing so yeah. you know. all right well hey we're gonna get into our table of contents i don't know about that one <laughs> All right, well, Michael, Let, let's let's dive into that table of contents, folks. I don't oh, know. Yeah. I'm Keep trying something new. <laughs> okay, so Wizard 85 with a September 1998 cover date had three different covers, and all of them have very different behind-the-scenes stories that are very memorable. Now, according to the big book of Wizard covers, the first was a Kevin McGuire Superman and Wolverine cover with the Man of Steel using his super breath to blow out Wolverine's lighter as Logan tries to light up a cigar. Now, here's the thing. I'm going to post this to social media because... Because there is like a multi-page article in the big book of covers about the five-month process of just getting this thing produced. There was so much going on. But the basic idea is that it was originally designed by Lionel Francis Yu, who was drawing Wolverine at the time, and his dream was to draw Superman. And so they said, fine, do it. But when they kept looking at his sketches, they're just like, his art style was too serious. It wasn't silly enough for the gag mm -hmm. that they wanted to have on it. So they just paid you. They said, well, thank you for trying. Here's your money. And then they hired Kevin McGuire to use his comedy chops, you know, because he knew how to make the concept sing. He had done all, you know, the Justice League and all the, those things where he's just having a great time doing funny faces. And actually, the previous issue, he did a, an actual drawing board tutorial on how to draw expressions. But Brian Cunningham, once again, he mentions, quote, for the McGuire cover, there was a lot of internal debate if the blowout, again, with Superman blowing out Wolverine's lighter, of the match would be clear enough. McGuire felt it would be we weren't so sure so we asked liquid who did the coloring to add the mm -hmm. super breath in color so there's more of like a line and it's kind of white you know clear white coming by yeah. you get to see so many different alternate versions of that cover in this piece that we'll post there but do you like this one i will say it took me 
uh, probably about 10 looks to realize that he's blowing out the match. I wasn't sure at first. And also, I don't recall Wolverine having a red belt. I mean, I don't know if I've ever noticed that. Maybe maybe he has, but I never really noticed. Yeah, no, it, it's very prominent here, but yeah, that it, that is a part of that early, you know, yellow costume design for sure. I think of the three covers, this is probably the best of the three, if you ask me. It's beautiful, and and it's yeah, it really pops. Plus, like, when are you going to see Wolverine and Superman together? Yeah. Now, the second cover was an Avengers cover, but it was drawn in the animated style of, like, Batman the Animated Series. Yeah, it looks like a Bruce Timm-style, you know, cover. Yeah, let me read this here, because this is what they say. Our goal was to create buzz with this cover image. See, there wasn't an Avengers cartoon at the time, so we aped the Batman the Animated Series art style and presented the Avengers in that fashion. The result? Some annoyed fans. They felt the cover misled them with a project that didn't exist. Our lessons learned, we handled gimmick covers like this much more carefully in the future. And so Rick Burchett was actually the artist oh. on that. So and I think he was drawing some of the uh you know the animated style comics right. that you see at the time so anyway i thought that was funny but also there is a third cover as we said here which was a superman for all seasons cover this was by tim sale now the other interesting thing about this was that it was not supposed to be a cover initially and so what brian cunningham tells us here quote the sale cover presented an unusual challenge and that the image was sized as a poster this art was originally commissioned by our promotions department and there was some miscommunication between them and dc marketing in the end my recollection is that steve blackwell who was the lead designer was asked to just make it work as a cover the result covered up 60 percent of the logo which wasn't preferable but since it had a lower print run than the others it was ultimately deemed not a big deal <laughs> <laughs> That's true. We had to hunt for this cover for a long time for the archives. Like we have a sealed copy of it and I'm not going to open that one up just because I'm just like, man, that, I just could not locate it anywhere. I'm, I'm amazed that you found it. Where did you, did you find it on eBay? I guess probably yeah, I'm just, just patiently, like literally like probably two years of searching on eBay and it finally <laughs> popped up. I'm like, thank you. So we've kind of already talked about everything that was packed into the poly bag up at the top of the show, but I will mention there was a Brian Douglas Ahern calendar as per usual, and it was backed by a Lady Death Purgatory poster from Chaos Comics. But what's interesting is that Wizard went back to binding the poster and calendar in the middle of the magazine like they did in the early days. Like recently, they'd just been, you know, separate pieces of paper folded in the poly bag. And for mm -hmm. some reason now, they were attached to the magazine again, which I don't like because then it's perforated, but you might rip it if you're trying to take it out. Like it was not a great idea. So I, I'm curious to see how long that lasts. But the last uh, offer, of course, they had to have a half issue and there was a fantastic four half issue that they included cool. so you could mail away for that but michael let's talk a little bit about the man for all seasons here on the cover so the superman covers are justified by three different related features within the issue the first is a chart comparing the year one style of man of steel from superman for all seasons to the modern day version in the words of writer jeff loeb so this chart is interesting because the then look looks more Tim Saley than the now look, you know? Well, that's what it is. I think what they're saying is we're going back to an earlier story. So here's Tim Sale's art style over here. And then here's like what the standard DC current continuity looks like. So I don't know if you want to read the Superman one first. You can read the then, I'll read the now. And the, the then is Jeff Loeb talking. Okay. 
at this time, he's much more Clark than Superman. He's a high school kid from Kansas, a country mouse who's becoming a city mouse. What's interesting to me is how a farm boy comes to grips with living in a big city, all the while coming to grips with the fact that if he wanted, he could beat the crap out of anyone on the planet. Yep. So, you know, that that was definitely a lesson we saw also in a lot of the movies, too. Yes. Kent. Now, as far as the now... Clark is used to Metropolis and has made a name for himself as a Pulitzer Prize-winning columnist for the Daily Planet and a novelist. As Superman, he's been killed, resurrected, married, turned into Electric Blue Superman, turned into Electric Blue and Electric Red Superman, then turned back into regular Superman. He's kept busy. (laughs) (laughs) Let's read the Lex Luthor one, too, because it's pretty funny. Sure. The Lex Luthor one, first of all, the Jeff Loeb design is very, very different than you would normally imagine. Believe it or not, Metropolis major industrialist has hair. He's also an angry Lex. Loeb said he's not used to having the spotlight taken off of him. And now there's a Superman stealing the limelight. At this point, there are still more people in Metropolis who know Luthor than Superman But that's changing. Interesting setup, yeah. But now he's lost his hair, died, been cloned, destroyed Metropolis, and blamed it all on the clone, got married secretly, had a kid, and locked his wife in the hospital after putting her in a coma after the birth of his kid. You could say he's kept busy, too. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta love it. So I haven't read Superman for all seasons. I've only heard it's fantastic, but I've never checked it out. So I've never read it either, and I've wanted to for years. And And I think some elements of this are going to be in the new Superman legacy movie as well. I think it's a combination of this and like all-star Superman and Superman flyby. I think of like the, the three that they're sort of pulling from in this, in this upcoming movie. So, I mean, it looks cool. I definitely would like to read it. I just haven't had, you know, there's, there's so many things that I'm trying to, I don't have time, but it looks cool though. The second story is the reveal that Alex Ross is painting 30 new double-page Superman pieces for the oversized 64-page Superman Peace on Earth one-shot written by Paul Dini, which features the last son of Krypton trying to solve world hunger on Earth. Do you remember seeing these? I I remember seeing them in bookstores, not just comic book stores, but like it started with this one where there was just just giant and you would just open it up and you're like, wow, Alex Ross art in like, you know, writ large. But then they did three other ones with Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. Remember, it was just like Justice and Pete and whatever like they were called. I mean, I just remember this time like Alex Ross really, I don't want to say breaking into the mainstream, but the bookstores were carrying the stuff. I mean, the one poster of like him flying over the earth with like the silhouetted, you know, kids in the bottom corner. I saw that in like Borders books. You saw that in comic shops. They had that poster all over. I think I may have saw like in Virgin Records, some of that in the city at some point. Like it was everywhere, this poster. Yeah. The farm one I've seen, but far less. Uh, The bottom one where he's like saving the girl in the snow. I think I've only seen it on the internet, but never seen it in person. But that the one flying over the earth, because it's so reminiscent of of the Christopher Reeve flying over the earth thing. At the end of the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Everybody saw that at some point. And finally, the last man standing showdown for this issue pits Superman against Spawn with an image by Barry Kitson while Spawn gets 
the advantage in the early going due to Kal-El's vulnerability to magic and desire to reason with McFarlane's tragic hero. Eventually, Superman gets pissed and gives Spawn a whooping worthy of doomsday and puts Al Simmons down for the count. So what's your thoughts on the outcome of this battle between Spawn and Superman? We were talking about Kingdom Come a little bit earlier. Like, we know that he was totally vulnerable to Shazam, you know, the power of Shazam, the magic of Captain Marvel. And Spawn is like all hell magic, basically. Mm -hmm. So I feel like he would ultimately have the advantage. Superman is super strong and all of that. But I feel like when does Spawn operate? At night. So he's not going to have the solar power working for him. And what if Spawn, Spawn can teleport? What if he teleports him to a place where it's dark on the other side of the world when the you know the dawn starts yeah. coming up so he just loses all his power spawn could win this thing even though i do want to mention they have this box here that's the tail of the tape you know their height their weight their reach all that kind of stuff but then it says complexion for superman fair for spawn vomitous <laughs> and then it says cape for superman red for spawn absurd <laughs> That is funny. Yeah, I don't know. I never I never thought about this combination of people fighting each other. I think it would be a very interesting battle. The only thing that I think would be a difference is that, you know, Superman could be further away and use heat vision and like slice him up with heat vision. I know, but Spawn um, has his like green vision, whatever you call it. You know, he's always yeah. got the stuff coming out of his eyes. Like they're yeah. kind of evenly matched in that way. That's a fair point. I guess so. That's a good point. Yeah. I don't know. Hard to say. But yeah. it's 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 an interesting sort of like we've seen Batman fight Spawn in the past, Multiple but I'm surprised we've never seen a comic where Superman fights Spawn. Like it's make it happen, a... McFarland. Come on, yeah, let that license out there for. It. <laughs> <laughs> now, getting back to a guy we've talked to recently, the mighty Casey is an interview with up and coming Marvel writer Joe Casey, who they describe as quote a lanky Jim Carrey lookalike. <laughs> I don't know if you get that at all from this picture, Michael. I'm just like mm, I don't think so. <laughs> But uh, this interview was actually referenced heavily in our Wizard Files episode with Joe Casey, where he did reveal that his break came after making friends with James Robinson at a comic book convention. As Casey explains here, though, quote, James had just written two issues of Cable. Then he got the job writing the Freddy vs. Jason movie screenplay and told me he was going to have to back off some things, including Cable. I said, wow, that's too bad. I was looking forward to you writing the book. I would love to try some things with Cable. He just smiled and said, okay. Okay, we can make that happen. I went home to my apartment, pulled over my TV tray, and wrote out a plot. I thought it was just a writing exercise, but then he told me to send it over to cable editor Mark Powers at Marvel. A few days later, James called and said, congratulations, you just wrote cable number 51. The first thing I ever said to Marvel is the plot to cable number 51 and they publish it? I know I'm lucky. I'm lucky to have had James hold the door open for me. Just imagine that, dude. It's just like somebody likes you because they met you at a convention. I mean, he says he handed him samples in the past and he knew of his work, but it's just that's kind of funny, you know? <laughs> like That is pretty oh, funny. Wow. <laughs> now, also, as previously reported and discussed in this issue, Casey was also taking over the Hulk after Peter David ended his 12-year run, about which Joe says, quote, I didn't even have a driver's license when he started. Who thought it would ever become available? It's almost like I'm not on Hulk long enough to really miss it. And that's a strange phrase, right? Like, what does that statement mean exactly? Well, Casey reveals that his assignment was just to wrap up the David series before the previously mentioned John Byrne and Ron Garney relaunched it. Says Casey, quote, publishing is weird. I'm doing seven issues 
and I know I'm done before the first one even sees print. But Casey was also launching his creator-owned Hell Cop series through Wills Portacio's new Avalon Studios while mm. continuing on cable, so he was plenty busy. But like I said, there is this really interesting sidebar where they kind of ask Joe Casey about what his like dream projects would be that he would want to work on. And I don't know if any of these stand out to you, Michael, but the one that I thought was kind of interesting, just because I, I guess it's kind of what they were doing with Marvel Knights eventually, but he says Power Man and Iron Fist, quote, I'd bring it back to its early 70s black exploitation kung fu bong water roots. I think Marvel needs a good, solid cult book. DC has cachet with the fans because they do edgy things like Starman and Hitman. It'd be nice to bring a little bit of that to Marvel. Did that say bong water roots? <laughs> <laughs> it was the 70s, man. Yeah. I mean, I I know who Power Man and, and Iron Fist are. Of course I do. But that's that's another story or book that was so wildly popular and and like kind of revered to this day. Like people love those two characters together in the comics. Not so much in the TV show, but the comic books were very popular. I'd be interested in seeing that. That's kind of cool. The Secret Society of Super of Villains, it would be a full-blown crime novelist, Elmore Leonard-style DC Universe crime book with tons of black comedy. I'd follow a core cast of villains through the underworld and see the crap they'd be involved in. There's a whole side of supervillains that has nothing to do with fighting superheroes. DC got my proposal. I pray they go for it. But what do you think about that? Does that sound like something you've heard of before? I mean, I've seen stories where you see like supervillains and what they're kind of doing when they're not being supervillains. You know, a lot of that actually in the Harley Quinn show on Max tends to do that, which I find really interesting. It's like, all right, we're not always running away from Batman, which is kind of cool. I'd be down for this kind of thing. Like, I, I kind of like these sort of stories about villains that aren't necessarily revolved around getting pummeled by heroes over that, just sort of doing hijinks and stuff like that. Yeah. So the wizard Q&A with Chris Claremont opens by describing the veteran X-Men writer as thoroughly bored with it all. And he speaks in a stream of quotes that feels as if they've been said a thousand times before. And finally, he gives a well-placed sigh when the questions about the X-Men pop up. That being said, Claremont does perk up when asked about an old X-Men plot he never got to write. I had a whole arc built up leading to Uncanny X-Men 300, where Wolverine became a master assassin of the hand. It was going to be the X-Men versus Wolverine for a year. It was going to involve Jean Grey being forced to choose between Cyclops and Wolverine. It's noted that his final issue of Uncanny X-Men number 279, so he never got close to telling that story after leaving the title in the early 1990s. That's interesting. I, I'd be okay with that. I don't know if I want, I, I don't like year-long story arcs. Give me six issues. Don't give me 12. It's too much. Then they cross it over to all the different other titles and it becomes kind of messy. Wizard then asks Claremont about it, the situation since he is now the right-hand man to Marvel editor-in-chief Bob Harris in his role as vice president, editorial director of Marvel. In 1991, the writer was very vocal about the fact that he left the book because Harris, as X-Men editor, had sided with Jim Lee in overruling Claremont's plot ideas for the books. Claremont clarifies 
we've actually spent the last couple of years sorting it out. My coming back was not a spur-of-the-moment decision. It's something we've been talking about for two and a half years. Wow. Though Claremont was writing Fantastic Four this time, in addition to being editor of all Marvel editors, (laughs) being the editor of all Marvel editors, the conversation is mostly about X-Men, with Wizard asking bluntly, are there too many X-Books or are we just fine? To which Claremont replies, oh no, 11 X-Men books is probably too much because we're drawing from the same well of characters and events. I think there are more mutants in the universe than there are superheroes right now. It's hard to be the downtrodden minority when you outnumber everyone else two to one. So Adam, what's your take on this? Do you think, you know, the X-Men lose something? First of all, there being so many of them. And as they grow in the ranks of that, like, I feel like, again, I agree. There's a lot of mutants out there, a lot. And they've they've just added another one because now Ms. Marvel is a mutant. Yeah, well, I mean, th- that's the thing. Like, I think you need a separate comic book company that's called Mutant Comics and everything <laughs> can just be a mutant in that world. Because, yeah, like, it is supposed to be supposedly this allegory to, you know, again, minorities that are being, you know, uh, unfortunately discriminated against and all those things. And so, yeah, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It's like, well, we got to keep having new characters and new mutants that exist, you know, and maybe they're on the new mutants and they're the next generation. Yeah. Now there's newer mutants, you know, and like, <laughs> I know that's the thing that keeps me out of there because like there's so many characters that it literally feels like a separate universe to the point like when civil war happens when like all these big events happen most of the time the x-men are just like no we're not getting involved we have our own universe of stories happening over here we got our own drama we don't need to deal with you yeah the rest of you (laughs) seriously like to me it's just like it's too bad it's like they used to be like so strange and and mysterious but now it just seems like yeah there's got to be a a whole wave of mutants that everybody knows a mutant in their life in the marvel universe yeah all right uh moving on in this interview though because there's so many interesting things claremont has to say moving on to wolverine when asked what he thinks about fans screaming for the return of the mutants adamantium claremont responds quote he doesn't need it. I think it's great that Wolverine is vulnerable, that his bones can be broken. Bad things can happen to him, and he has to factor his vulnerabilities into the equation, which is something that I have said in the past. We've had that conversation. I'm just like, if bone claws are fine. But as for whether or not Wolverine's origin should finally be revealed, the writer, who defined the character, declares, quote, we want to keep the readers enticed. We want to excite their imagination. If there are at least 100,000 people out there with their own visions of Wolverine's origin, more power to them. I mean, if I get the best story ever written, that's one thing, but I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> Fast forward two years later, Wolverine Origins. <laughs> Which I don't think you would agree was the best story. But <laughs> Wizard dares to then address the criticism from the, I guess you would say critics of Claremont's work, that he is too verbose and melodramatic. Which is something I have said also. But it leads to this response, quote, Yeah, I know. I suspect at this point that I could write a silent story and be accused of being too verbose. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, it's like I would be perfectly willing to do a word count comparison with Spawn or whatever title people come up with. I think that that's awesome. And he's like, do it. Prove to me that I'm the most verbose writer in comics. <laughs> I, I, I could probably think of five names off the top of my head today that are more verbose than he was back then. Kevin Smith's got to be one of them. That guy loves to (laughs) type that dialogue. Finally, when asked what Marvel is doing wrong, Claremont has an opinion. He says, quote, 
too many of our stories are too rooted in the past. Personally speaking, I don't really feel an interest to tell the origin of Captain America for a 15th time, or the first year of Spider-Man's adventures, or stories told between the original Uncanny X-Men and Giant Size X-Men number one. We need to break new ground and not keep strip-mining our heritage for good or ill. Now, hilariously, as many X-Men fans know, Claremont would go on to write X-Men Forever a decade later, <laughs> retroactively writing all the stories he would have told if he had never left the book in 1991. So, a little bit of a hypocrite. Hey, yeah. buddy talks, you know? <laughs> now, Brian Cunningham did have a memory of this particular article. He said, quote, the only thing I recall of this is how great a writer Chris Hutchins is, who was the interviewer. He was right out of college and just had a flair to the writing. His work was a joy to edit. So there you go, Chris Hutchins. You did awesome work back in the day. And he really does add some flair to it because, I mean, he was just going for it. He's like goading on Claremont, who says, I've seen it all. This is just another interview. I don't care. And he's like, well, tell me this then. Let's get you, get you going. As you look through there, did you have like a big takeaway, like when you're looking at what Claremont's talking about here? Well, you know, there's a couple of things. I, I, I find it a little funny about the, the strip mining of our heritage because Marvel has now just again brought back for the second or third time the classic X-Men from the original run back to the present day. And I'm like, oh, man, they just did that like five years ago. Why are we doing this again? What I find interesting is that he seems to recognize the flaws, even if he's sort of talking about it in a roundabout sort of way. Without saying, you know, this is not good. But I do like the fact that he's identified things and said, like, there are too many of these books. Or there's too many X-Men. To be honest with that and not be, like, afraid that the legal people are going to be like, I can't believe you just said that. Oh, no. <laughs> In today's day, he'd get fired for that. Oh, and you oh, said yeah. something. You know, we can't say that. But, hey, that's kind of a cool takeaway. All right. Well, I will so, tell you, Michael. So last issue with Mike Schwartz where we were talking Wizard had a 25 most powerful people in comics list and I asked him to say like so who was somebody you didn't know was so powerful and then who is somebody you don't think belongs on the list or rather they were powerful then but they're not powerful now and my pick was Chris Claremont I was like he's never done anything beyond his X-Men legacy from the 70s and early 80s and after that everything he's tried I just I don't feel like like people love him still because of what he did there but you know his influence is is not felt today i don't think as much like it is from the perspective of okay people write a certain way and maybe it's mutated over time from his mutated huh? from his style <laughs> but but i just i don't think you would say like oh you know he's such a big important piece of comics now so i, would, I wouldn't say he's a big important piece of comics now but even at new york comic-con last month i couldn't even get close to him the line to sign with him and just have 10 seconds with him was tremendous like it just all day long more more than anybody more than jim lee more than everybody he had the longest line i was shocked by that because rewind five years ago he had nobody and i went up right to him and talked to him just so bizarre yeah but well and so that was a list of 25 wizard has another list of 25 for some reason that's their magic number right now 10 is not enough so the Heat of the Moment is a list of the most memorable moments in comics, according to the wizard staff, who explain our criteria were this. We went for slam bang defining moments that smacked you in the face. 
We don't expect you to agree with everything. In fact, we had our own arguments over what should stay and go. But we hope you'll agree that these scenes are all vivid, defining moments that kick you in your you know what. <laughs> Number 25 was Hal Jordan destroys the Green Lantern Corps. Number one was Batman defeats Superman in The Dark Knight Returns. I don't think that should be number one. Well, we got to talk about that. Yeah. But in between, there are a lot of other contenders for the number one spot. So we're each going to pick a moment from this list we think should have gotten the top spot. Brian Cunningham, he did mention what was going on behind the scenes with this a little bit more. He said, quote, usually these big list features got determined in a meeting or a series of meetings. Lots of arguments, second guessing, camaraderie. It ran the gauntlet. Once the list was set, we divvy up the list to be written amongst the editors. I remember claiming a lot of them. Now this is the weird memory. I wrote my first drafts while on vacation visiting my then girlfriend in North Carolina. Not a great vacation. Let me tell you, I clearly had boundary issues. I might have edited the others there as well. Pat would then go in and punch up whatever he felt needed it. Then I would take one more pass at it, fixing Pat's typos. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's just an interesting way of how this, you know, a list this large would, would get pared down. So if you had to look at something on the list here, Michael, that's more deserving of being in the number one spot than Batman in armor, weakening Superman with kryptonite. Like, what would you have done? I would have honestly taken number 23, Flash dies, saving the universe in crisis. That should be number one. I knew because, you were going to pick that one. Because at this day and age, at this point in comics, he's still dead. And if this doesn't happen, the DC universe that we see going forward doesn't exist like this is probably the most significant moment in, in my opinion and that you know that's just me looking quickly and it's someone that anybody can identify because they remember the imagery from that book bar none my criteria for the number one based on what they're saying is we wanted something that was shocking something that just like changed people's minds about what comics could be i think it was actually gwen stacy dying the okay i say that because you know they, they have it here listed as number 10 which is a good place for it but it should be number one because it shocked people it was in regular continuity how many times had spider-man saved gwen stacy yeah. and all of a sudden she actually dies and then you know if you know the behind the scenes of it stan lee says he didn't approve it like they misunderstood him and they went with it anyway and like really? so, yeah so he was just like uh, i don't remember saying yes kill gwen stacy so it's just another thing where it was like something that really hadn't happened in comics in a big way at that yeah. Point. So it's kind of an end of innocence. Like, I just, I think that's a huge moment just in, in Marvel Comics and, and what they were going for. Oh, you know what? The, oh, there yeah. was on the list here. They don't have Magneto ripping Wolverine's adamantium out. Which like, has that... been like the focus of the magazine for so long. Yeah. <laughs> That was huge. Why is that on this list here? Yeah, instead, they have Wolverine getting killed in Days of Future Past, which is a moment, but it did, again, it was an alternate future. It didn't really yeah. matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Now, let's talk about this just in general on the list. What do you look at and say, why is this even a contender? Because I will say there's a lot of stuff from the 80s here. You could tell that the Wizard Staffers were kids that grew up reading in the 80s. You would think there'd be more 90s stuff on it. Like, yeah. here's what mattered. The 90s are almost over there's obviously things that have happened but when you look at it what do you say 
what are you guys doing? <laughs> well, number two, Ozymandias is victorious in Watchmen. I just don't think, I mean, it's significant for the Watchmen book, but the Watchmen doesn't take place in anywhere other than Watchmen. Like, it doesn't impact the greater DC universe. I think that's number two is way high for that. I feel like you know, this is where you should see either, you know, Barbara Gordon get shot or Gwen Stacy, that kind of thing. That's way, way too high. What do you is, th- is there one you've never even heard about? And you're just like, I don't even know what this is. Like, wh- why would I have this on here? Well, what was the one with the Thor one? With Yeah, with- see, that was my vote. Thor threatens Loki's head. I'm, I'm like, like, I don't uh, What does that mean? I don't <laughs> even know what it means. Like, they, they show the panels and he says, for there soars the hammer of Thor and by royal Odin's decree it must return to my head. Nothing may bar its way. Not even the head of Loki. So basically he's saying it's going to hit your head, Loki. And then you you read like the, it's from Thor number 359 and they're just kind of, it just sounds like a standard plot. Mm-hmm. Like I don't understand why this would be epic in any way. Like Beta Ray Bill, like Beta Ray Bill picks up Thor's hammer and gets the power of Thor instead of yeah. like, that would have been something, but this? What? What yeah. is this? It's a nothing story. It doesn't yeah. belong there. I mean, I love Miracle Man, but not people don't know it well enough to to care about the return of Kid Miracle Man because most people probably wouldn't even know there was a Kid Miracle Man. <laughs> Like, it's true. I mean, it, it's mentioned as being so gruesome and disgusting, like the, yeah. all the bodies he rips apart and stuff. So that I think is what they were going for. But I agree too. It's it's a little obscure for this time, especially. He kind of hadn't had his renaissance yet. I mean, I would say, you know, number 21, the death of crypto. Like I would have never known that crypto died. <laughs> But- yeah, so, so there's a couple oddball ones here that you could tell, again, affected a 12-year-old reading it in 1986, and they're like, oh, I can't believe it. And then now they're writing a magazine 12 years later, and they're like, yeah. like we got, guys, we've got to have that one on the list. I get one. That's my one. <laughs> <laughs> but speaking of those guys writing the magazine, let's get into our final little feature here that's unique to this issue, because uh, issue 85 of Wizard has the first ever Wizard bullpen adventure, Galactus meets Wizard. It's called. It's a Fumetti comic, which is something they loved doing. That's not a Kinetti comic. <laughs> not a not a Kinetti comic. Although we got to see something one of these days that you put together. But a Fumetti comic is word balloons added to photos of your know, live people and then presented in a comic book panel format. So the basic story involves Pat McCallum dressed as Galactus breaking into a wizard staff meeting after Brian Cunningham, Jim McLaughlin, Greg Orlando, Matt Senreich, and Cassie, the wizard secretary, rip open the silver surfer and find that he's full of popcorn he's like a jiffy pop man and then galactus threatens to consume the wizard offices and vengeance but agrees to a series of challenges against the staff to save their lives but he loses via a white castle hamburger eating contest with jim mclaughlin which was a running theme in this magazine so we're gonna post it on social media so you can enjoy all the gags and get some laughs but this is the first of many more photo comics which really became like a regular feature in the magazine within a few years time even like down to like the final days of the magazine. They were still doing a lot of this stuff as a joke. But here's what Brian Cunningham had to say about being in this and how it all came together. Quote, this photo shoot took a couple of days. It was absolutely ridiculous. Pat hammed it up as Galactus, as he usually did. You should have seen him walk convention floors with it on before cosplay was a thing. But Greg Orlando was not a fan of the dying a virgin line. Because <laughs> there's a line where they put that on him when Galactus is about to kill him. I don't want to die a virgin. 
virgin. <laughs> we'll have to reach out to Greg. He's very responsive. But as you look through it, Michael, is there a joke or a gag that makes you laugh or smile? And actually, do you see any Easter eggs? Because there are actually Easter eggs in the background, too. Uh, I will say the one that jumps out to me just as a, a wizard history nerd is, you know, they always had their running gag about pie. I like pie, putting that word balloon on stuff. And there's Brian. He says, and we got to figure out a way to fit pie into this month's issue. And somebody says off panel, you just did. Oh, <laughs> and but behind him on a whiteboard, it says pie. They, they fit pie into it twice. I mean, the Ewoks is kind of like... <laughs> Yeah, at the very end, Jim McLaughlin is talking to three Ewoks in a forest. <laughs> it's just apropos of nothing, you know. That's pretty funny. Just uh, random. Well, it's Michael, pretty clever, though. Yeah, I mean, th this comic had a very cinematic scope, and the Ewoks, of course, come from a very famous film. So I think it's time we get into... Heroes in Motion. Wizard 84 featured the first report of Tom Cruise showing interest in playing Iron Man, which is still being talked about 25 years later, in a live-action feature film and developing it with his production company. Apparently, an Iron Man movie script had been written, but the project was put on hold due to ongoing issues with Marvel's bankruptcy. Also mentioned is Matt Damon possibly playing Daredevil as Wizard reports. There have been talks with Disney about a Daredevil movie after the character's film rights reverted from 20th Century Fox back to Marvel. It's strange then that Damon's friend, Ben Affleck, ends up playing Matt Murdock in a film production by 20th Century Fox five years later. I don't know why Disney is mentioned there. Disney had the rights to make a Daredevil movie that they bought from 20th Century Fox and then it went back to Fox? Yeah, that's very confusing. Marvel it's... had them. It says that it goes from Fox back to Marvel. <laughs> like, I don't know what has happened. I don't remember any of this. Everybody wanted to make a Daredevil movie. Okay. Because everybody wanted a Batman movie. So would you have preferred Matt Damon over Ben Affleck? Or do you have no opinion on this either way? I think the Tom Cruise Iron Man would have worked a lot better than a mm -hmm. Matt Damon or the Ben Affleck uh, Daredevil movie that we got. But I still think at this time, the Iron Man movie would have been really interesting, especially because they would have had to do practical effects for the most yeah. part. And I would have been really interested to see how they would have done that. Yeah, they would have like take the Rocketeer and pick it up a notch. <laughs> yeah, let's do a little bit better than the Rocketeer, guys. Come on. <laughs> Now, this issue also features the 98 Fall Preview, which is a guide to the lineup of animated series airing on TV or that were in development, at least. Most of the shows mentioned, though, are already established series like the new Batman and Robin Adventures, Superman Adventures, Spawn on HBO. But meanwhile, Marvel has handed over all of their cartoons to the UPN network, who are going to air reruns of Spider-Man and the X-Men, plus a cartoon block described as the Incredible Hulk and Friends. <laughs> 
<laughs> which will be mixing in episodes of the old Iron Man and Fantastic Four animated series for the Marvel Action Hour. They said it's for Sunday mornings. There's Sunday programming on UPN. And I remember watching, you know, all those shows then, but I didn't realize that, yeah, that they were rotating it back in there. But also mentioned is the Frank Miller and Jeff Darrow, Big Guy and Rusty, the boy robot, that that was in development for Fox. But it's also, again, it's strange. They bothered to include the 10th season of The Simpsons, the third season of King of the Hill, the debut of Futurama, and Dr. Katz, professional therapist on Comedy Central. Why are they- You remember that show? I do, but why is it in Wizard? It has nothing to do with comics. (laughs) I don't know. I think the reason was because in this issue, they are advertising their short-lived Tunes magazine. Mm -hmm. And I think they were kind of trying to prime people for that. Be like, hey, we report on cartoons now too. Animated TV is the future. And it just did not catch. So the only thing they're missing is the critic. Yeah. I mean, he was on Comedy Central though. Yeah. Yeah. They mentioned the tick was doing reruns on Comedy Central too. So, yeah. So weird. So our last Heroes in Motion feature here is On the Mark, which reports that Rob Liefeld's original concept created with Will Smith is being produced by Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich. Oh, man. Roland Emmerich. Oh, no. End of the World King, who made Independence Day with Smith. The plot, the science fiction film focuses on Mike Collins, a young man who finds himself with superhuman powers after a dying man transfers a permanent mark on his hand. According to Liefeld, the mark is my Star Wars. Okay. (laughs) It's a sci-fi movie that I think we all want to see. Oh, is it now? Yes. It's, (laughs) it's, it's, It's a space opera? Is that what we want? Okay. The film from Universal Pictures was reportedly going to begin shooting in early 1999 for a 2000 release. As with all Rob Liefeld film and television projects, this yet again never ever how can you take so many swings and you never connect i mean we just got the word the prophet movie is not happening like is it the jake gyllenhaal one is dead yeah i was just seeing it today actually it was a continuation of a conversation we've been having with uh positively lifefieldian which is the liefeld account on x and he has this thing your question how is the prophet movie coming along and then you see a screen cap from rob liefeld that says I have some decisions to make. The option will run out soon, and I'd like Profit back in the stable with Bloodstrike and Brigade. By the way, this is the only way we can get our Rob Liefeld news, because yes, after all these years, we are still blocked. Wow. (laughs) So... What does happen, though, is the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen movie based on the Alan Moore comic book that hadn't even been published yet. Of course, this may be the case where if it hadn't been made, we might have been better off. Let me ask you a question about the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. What do you think of this movie, despite its reputation and maybe because of its reputation? What what are some of your thoughts on it? So I saw it having never read the comic. So I just went and saw the movie and I was like, it's a great idea. And I think it was stylish. I think it was really interesting. I thought the Invisible Man effects were cool. I thought the Mr. Hyde effects were really cool, that they were like a practical suit. Like, there's a lot of cool stuff in there. I couldn't tell you the plot. I I couldn't tell tell you either. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm like, I remember this happened and this happened and this happened, but I don't remember who they were fighting or what the whole point of it was. And I have gone back and read the comics and they're much more elegantly written, of course. Yeah. Alan Moore is very clever in everything he does. I don't hate it, but it's not one of those movies where I'm like, well, we should give it a chance. Go Like, I, I gave Van Helsing another watch recently and I was just like, no, this movie sucks. It, it still yeah. sucks for the first time I saw it. League of Extraordinary Gentlemen one where I'm like, I don't think it's terrible, but I, I don't need to watch it over and over again yeah i i think i've watched it maybe like two or three times i again i don't hate it i do hate that it essentially derailed sean connery's career (laughs) made him quit movies yeah yeah because essentially he passed on the matrix to do this it's like i'm not going to pass on something twice the rings yeah yeah you know and does this and it kind of basically said I'm done with movies because of this you know but I do think it has a really good cast it does have very interesting effects again I just don't know what the movie's about yeah (laughs) couldn't tell you but speaking of James Bond and casting Michael let's get into the casting call for this issue this is interesting they want to cast a danger girl movie yes J. Scott Campbell's cliffhanger you know create her own title that was burning up the charts here so we have danger girl so what do you think of this first choice Charlize Theron as Abby Chase is probably spot on if they had done this instead of Eon Flux it would have been a home run would have been really fun yeah I could totally see that I feel I feel like just what she's proven it's all these years later all the action films she's done and like the spy thriller films like yeah she's perfect they were way ahead of the curve on that one so way to go wizard yeah that was a good one that was a good pick for Natalia Castle who's like the tall blonde Russian girl who had yeah. betraying them spoiler uh <laughs> they want gina lee nolan from baywatch and i don't think she's got the gravitas unfortunately i don't i don't think she could act in baywatch let alone <laughs> i would not be intimidated by her i would go with like natasha henstridge maybe Ooh, from good. species or who was the girl who played in la femme nikita like, yes yeah. yes the tv show on usa the actress that plays la femme nikita would have been perfect for this role. That was the first name I thought of too. So now, the Sydney Savage character, they have Elizabeth Hurley and I feel like they pull a picture out of Austin Powers. Yeah, because they kind of reference it. Again, I think she could work it because she does have that kind of cat suit in Austin Powers and everybody likes Elizabeth Hurley. I don't care who you are. Everybody loves her, so she would draw people in. Yeah, right if not Elizabeth Hurley, I would have gone with Lucy Lawless. So... The next one is Silicon Valerie, and they have a young Claire Danes fresh off of Romeo and Juliet. I don't know. I I like Claire Danes, but I don't think she's like an action star. I mean, we saw her in Terminator 3, and I wasn't really sold on her there. This is supposed to be like the nerdy girl in the chair type character. Mm -hmm. And so I was trying to think like who you would get like from one of the teen shows of the era. Mm -hmm. And like, like, you know, I'm actually thinking, you know, this is like Dawson's Creek era. Uh, right about yeah. here so uh wow what's that girl she like wins academy awards now the blonde oh uh, michelle williams yeah, michelle williams i think she would have been interesting maybe yeah. just yeah. give her a red wig you know yeah but she's so versatile she would color her hair no problem for duncan they have dan schneider from head of the class damage control damage control damage control 
I don't know if you're aware of it. He is a controversial figure who did some bad things on Nickelodeon shows he was producing. So bye bye, Dan Schneider. You don't get to be in this. Chris Farley is going to play Duncan. (laughs) Oh, way better. Way better. Way more fun. But for Deuce, this one's a no brainer because they want Sean Connery to play the guy who kind of organizes and he's based on him from you know already 100 see it he's from medicine man so you're just like yeah, yeah okay duh <laughs> so for donovan conrad they have timothy dalton basically because he has an eye patch in the picture <laughs> yeah well it, it, it works but honestly i would say somebody more like bruce campbell because if you read the comic this guy's just like this boisterous like oh, i'm so charming and none of that i feel like bruce campbell could really pull that off and have some fun just hamming it up you know i i also kind of look at like an alan rickman Ooh, that would be interesting actually yeah you know? now the next one here for this guy the peach who's kind of this this skunk arms dealers how they describe him but they want john polito and if you don't know the name john polito you've seen this face he's in the crow he's i mean i always think of him from the rocketeer he's the guy running the air show this one they're always trying to give this guy a movie man and they try so hard billy zane as johnny barracuda (laughs) (laughs) which is quite a name that sounds like a name that Billy Zane would play. So Brian Cunningham did mention about this casting call. He's just like, for some reason, we were always trying to get Billy Zane into as many casting calls as we could. I can tell because they all he's always popping up. Yeah, he says here, quote, casting calls were initially a clipboard for suggestions, 90% of which were off. I feel like a lot of this is Dan Riley doing most of the groundwork. Then he'd show it to me, we'd talk, and then we'd lock it in. But most of the credit for these later casting calls belongs to Dan. Now, I have a recollection that Billy Zane's name always seemed to pop up for these somehow. We can only use him so much. (laughs) (laughs) Cheech Marin, they have Kid Dynamo. I mean, if you give somebody the name Kid, you can't have then 60-year-old Cheech Marin. (laughs) That doesn't quite work. I I would say, uh, and even just looking at the guy, yeah, you can see that he looks a little bit younger. So I would think somebody more along the lines of like maybe Nick Turturro or somebody like that could be a little scuzzy. He could play. Or or, or even like a John Leguizamo kind of guy. I can see it. You know? Now for our last one though, yeah, this is, this breaks my heart. We lost him uh, for a character called Mr. Giggles, who they say is a robotic villain. They want Richard Mole, who was Mole on Night court who was the wonderful harvey dent on batman the animated series yeah uh, oh. I mean, it's just a shame that we've we've lost him but uh i mean he's a bald guy they needed a tall bald guy <laughs> it works yeah. <laughs> but there you go so that yeah that was fun i would uh, say this is actually a decent list this is definitely not one of the worst i've seen them do and i and i think they really nailed it with Charlize theron right off the bat like that was a home run and everything else could be easily substituted here and there but yeah, this is one of the better ones I've seen. Yeah, there's not a lot to argue with, that's for sure. All right. Well, Michael, uh, you know, we had a fun time there, but we always like to close out the episodes with some fun. And let's hope that we're doing it this time with Turok's Top 10. Top 10 highlights of the annual Superhero Independence Day picnic. 
Number 10, Tim Drake burst into tears after catching a volleyball in the face. (laughs) He was not toughened up enough in his training. Number nine, Ant-Man slain by enraged Fin Fang Foom after ants spoil his chicken salad. Turns out they were just regular ants. Okay. (laughs) So random. Number eight, Cap's team wins like every game of Frisbee football. Oh, he's so good at the shield. Of course he's good with a Frisbee. But he's throwing it too fast and too hard. He's going to take people's arms (laughs) off. Calm down, bro. All right. Number seven. North Star works on his all over tan. Makes people feel really weird and uncomfortable until Stingray makes him put some pants on. (laughs) You got to have somebody without their pants on if it's wizard. Number six. Brother Voodoo misunderstands the party tradition and turns the pinata into a voodoo doll. Iowa resident Dave Kindle dies of numerous bludgeon wounds to the body and head. Dave I don't even Kindle know. Had to have been somebody's friend, and they just put his name <laughs> yeah. in the magazine. <laughs> I don't even know who Brother Voodoo is. He's actually a an old seventies Marvel character. Oh, okay. At this time, Chaos Comics was taking all the old seventies horror comics, and they teamed him up in this group called the Supernaturals. And Brother Voodoo was like the leader of the team. Ah, uh, okay, interesting. But number five, I don't know that I get this one. Might be racist. Manga characters assault the beachhead. Is this like a World War II reference? Like, I don't know. I don't know what the beachhead is. Number four, Spawn shows up to have some fun and get his mind off his trouble, but ends up getting thrown out of the park. Uh, That was the edited version there, folks. Number three, Iron Man gets rip-roaring drunk on Rolling Rock. Kills Puck. Number two, Hulk eats way too much deviled eggs, feels bloated, has to lie down for a while. (laughs) Okay. Number one, Jim Shooter appears like a grim harbinger of doom and eats all the potato salad. I gotta say, so in the Galactus Fumetti comic they did, when Galactus first enters their conference room, they're like, ah, it's Jim Shooter! And then now they're just... (laughs) They just loved picking on Jim Shooter at this time. I would love to know what he did to them, you know, (laughs) that they had to pick on him. But there you go. There's no Jim and Todd's hype machine here. Oh, I totally blew it. But the reason is there literally is no Jim Lee or Todd McFarlane news in this issue. I mean, there is a brief mention because there's a spawn contest. And then there's like Jim Lee, I think, is mentioned in just the top 10 artists. And that's kind of it. But let's get into the tally. All right, so Jim Lee is mentioned once in this issue. Todd McFarlane is mentioned twice. That brings our running total to Jim Lee, 497. Todd McFarlane, 467. So there you go. Very short Jim and Todd's hype machine this time around. Thanks for keeping us on track there, Michael. I do want to take a moment, and we talked about this a little bit privately. The Retro Network lost a dear friend and a truly wonderful person in Jason Gross who left us suddenly and leaves behind a wife and three children and a world of people that were impacted by this man. I never met him in person, Adam and my buddy Pete from Box Office 30 met him at RetroCon back in September. And anytime you interacted with Jason, he just 
was the kindest, warmest soul. Uh, we've chatted a bunch of times on the phone or over Zoom. And, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention him and 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 thank him, because if, if it wasn't for him and Mickey, we wouldn't have this platform to talk to all of you. And they really have been nothing but generous. And I wanted to just share kind of a little story real quick. So the, a couple of years ago, we did this retro network sort of like Zoom thing where we're like kind of picking characters and stuff like that for various things. And I, I said, you know, I'll do it. Sure. It was some sort of reference to movies or whatever. And I got involved by accident. And Jason and I were managing the Google sheet and kind of joking around and talking about it and come up with ideas and kind of cracking jokes. And he just had this way about him where everybody felt that they were like sitting in his living room, kind of hanging out and, and just chit chatting. And it's a, it's a true tragedy and a shame to have lost such a kind person and i wanted to just pay recognition to him and you know give adam a few minutes to talk about it as well if he wants to yeah i mean absolutely um you know he's one of those guys he did make you feel like you know you were his best friend i got to watch his funeral service and like everybody that got up there he just had a co-worker that came in and said i just got to know jason over the last few months but i'm here to just say i really wish i could have had more time with him because he was such an amazing guy made me feel special like so it's just like he's one of those like really very unique individuals that could just appeal to everybody be a friend to everybody be kind but also just so generous with his time just if you hear about how many people he spoke to on a daily basis like i, I talk to him all the time I, we were texting yeah. planning stuff for the retro network because we have multiple shows that we did together and like i was talking to him all the time but he's all these other people said oh i talked he would text me every day and you're like whoa you know so he was just a, a great man and um i really yeah we, we feel his loss and yet at the retro network the community he created we're carrying on to do yeah. the he would have done himself so like all his shows that he was involved in like we're really trying to keep those alive in some form but michael's 100 right the wizards would not exist we were there at the launch of the retro network they Man. contacted us and said do you have something you could do you know adam can you do sequel quest and i said oh, i'm doing sequel quest but what about this you know i i have this other idea they're like let's do it i have this weird guy from long island that i know <laughs> <laughs> and, and now you know, four years later here we are we get to talk yeah. to all of you on social media you get to hear the podcast and we just we're so grateful for all that that jason made possible for, for us and, and to have this this time with all of you and i'm very grateful for all the time that, that i personally was able to spend with him so that being the case though so we, we we've lost jason and uh that was a huge change for the retro network and the podcast itself here a uh, wizards the podcast guide to comics is having a little bit of a change as well as of this episode here is the thing we've been kind of dropping the hints we've been teasing you made it clear a few episodes back that there's going to be some changes in 2024 and one of those changes happens as of this episode this is going to be your last time on a main episode for a little while you're stepping into some other roles with the podcast what can you tell everybody about that decision and what you're looking forward to doing for the show going forward Sure. So, you know, as I've been mentioning, I, I've been looking at ways that I can expand my reach with the podcast, whether it's getting big time guests to interview and do more of the interview side of things. I want to grow the YouTube channel. I want to grow the TikTok and, you know, you know, be on the TikToks and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> And just sort of, you know, use my skills in video to sort of leverage it. And I'm also, you know, trying to dive deeper into working on this hopeful documentary we would like to produce. And so with that, 
when I was thinking about who would be a good replacement for me, I had to go with someone that has the same name as me because why would I not? Like I'm an egomaniac, so I might as well just have another person name Michael on the show. And the first thing that came to me was a great contributor to the show, just a great person, friend. Uh, Michael Schwartz is here with us, and he's going to be taking over the reins of the main episodes with Adam. And we want him to say hello and sort of share a little bit about himself as well. Let's pass the mic to Mike. Welcome. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be joining the team, you know, and I, I also have the same glasses as you, Michael, it looks like. Oh, so no one will notice, right? There's a... <laughs> Just got to shave your head. That's all you got to do. <laughs> oh, I didn't know that was in the contract. <laughs> it is. You didn't read that byline? <laughs> I'm excited to join the team, but also I just found a lot of my missing wizard issues. So I am prepped to go at least up to 150 I have up to. So we are, yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah th th this is great. You know, this was this is an opportunity. Like Michael said, like Mike has been, uh, you know, on social media all the time, commenting. He's enthusiastic. He, like he says, he now has actual physical copies of Wizard Magazine with him. And you know, we this has kind of been in the works for a while, as we as we knew we were going to be making this change. And each day, like I feel like I'm hearing from you, Mike. You know, you're like, oh yeah, and I found this. I found this. I can't wait to talk about this. So the the enthusiasm is there. The excitement is there, especially just for all of us now. You know. We are your hosting team on the main episodes. It's going to be myself, Mike Schwartz, but you're still going to be hearing from Michael Canetti. He is going to be on our Wizard Files interviews. He's going to be on our YouTube videos, especially on Patreon. If you go over there, we have our Patreon chats where we'll all be together talking. So plenty of Michael Canetti to go around as well. Just not these particular main episodes covering each issue of Wizard Magazine. After four years, we wanted to really just kick it up to 11, as they say, you know, <laughs> Spinal Tap reference. Anybody get that? No. <laughs> Uh, I love Spinal Tap. I have multiple <laughs> copies over here. <laughs> so, yeah. So, you know, we're really excited. Mike is a great addition to the show and he's going to be a lot of fun to listen to. And we have a lot of really cool things in store for you all and growing wizards and just our community of people that want to listen to us and hang out and chat about 90s comics and beyond. So thanks so much for everybody. Honestly, like as sad as I am to be saying, OK, Michael's not going to be here every other week when we get on the podcast. Like I'm amazed, like let's just put it this way life has happened to you multiple times and you're still on the podcast yeah. still... and we talk every single day it's true <laughs> it's not like i'm gonna miss you but it just for the audience at large but yeah so but it's, it's, it's just great and to, to have mike schwartz now here on the team like i'm really looking forward to everything that's to come but i just want to ask you mike like for you is there like a particular wizard memory just as, as we're getting into this that like kind of fuels your enthusiasm as you get ready to talk about it each episode episode now i think issue 23 was the one where i really started to to grab the wizards from my dad and be like okay you're done with this it's mine and the other one would have to be when i actively purchased my first half issue which was uh the flash uh, half issue that's when i i was like i'm using my own money now i'm going to buy this for myself and i think it was around that time that i would read it before my dad i hit a point where i was starting to read it more than him or I became more of an active 
participant in the magazine as opposed to <laughs> what, what is it called like i've taken the the, the sword and i'm the knight now. <laughs> the, the apprentice has become the master the become the master yeah <laughs> that's exactly it yeah oh that's awesome well great yeah. yeah so so much more excitement to come and thank you everybody for checking out this episode a momentous occasion indeed make sure you're subscribed and staying tuned everywhere you can find us so michael one more time tell them where can they get connected with wizards the podcast podcast guide to comics okay well first on x at wizards comics on instagram it's wizards underscore comics on facebook it is wizards the podcast guide to comics on patreon and speaking of patreon there michael our vigs are very important geeks we have to give them a shout out because they've certainly earned it by contributing five bucks a month to the podcast and it really does make a difference in all the plans that we're talking about that we have for the coming year so let's start with the newest geek on the block mark florio thanks mark david fink Brent Cranfill, Marway, Bruno Cavalcante, David M., Dalibor, J.S., Evan Bryant, Gary Hutcherson, Fernando Pinto, Jeremy Daw, Greg Schuler, Meltface Killa, Brian Acosta, Steve King, Denim Jedi, Mitchell Hall, Lee Markowitz, Stephen Forshaw, and Mark McDonald. I gotta say, the more I think about it, guys, it's just exciting. We're talking to these folks all the time, just in our private chats and all the other places places that they have to connect to us being our special patrons so we invite all of you to go to patreon.com forward slash wizards comics and look for the perks that are available to you but hey michael where else are we on youtube is wizards the podcast guide to comics on blue sky it's wizards comics i think we're going to be expanding into threads where where, are we at threads we we finally set up the account okay so so i guess we're wizards comics at threads there's so many platforms now who can even keep track but we're on a bunch of them and also we're on itunes we're on spotify we're on podbean all the different places you can check out your podcast if you're an android user an iphone user you just like listening to on your laptop please check us out and tune in for more because we're gonna keep going strong we've got a ton coming up in 2024 and thank you all as always for listening to us wherever you listen but until next time until we meet again my friends keep your books bagged aborted This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.